Well, ladies and gents, I'll, I'll interrupt the chat as the last few grown-ups come back from dropping off the children. As I say, really, really warm welcome to you this morning to church. Really, I'm really, really thrilled to hear this morning. It, it's, a church is a good thing, and I hope, I hope you agree with that. Uh, if this is the first time you've been to church, I hope that's a discovery uh, you make. Good thing for all sorts of reasons. So really thrilled and delighted that you're here. Very, very, very warm welcome um, to you. We're going to get straight into the Bible this morning. We're going to do things a little bit differently because we're going to hear uh, later on uh, some of our leaders trying to kind of apply the message we're going to hear. So we're going to do things a bit differently. So if you've got a Bible there, perhaps you'd open it up to Malachi. If you're using one of the church's Bibles and they're always available from the back, just help yourself to them. If you need a Bible at home, just take one of those church's Bibles as a free gift. Um, but if you're in one of the church's Bibles, it's on page 900. And 60, page 960, uh, it's Malachi, the last section of the Old Testament, the part of the Bible before Jesus, and uh, it's a series of transcripts of sermons. Malachi's name means the messenger, and this is a series of talks that he gave two and a half thousand years ago, so about uh, 500 years before Jesus was born, to Israel, the nation of Israel just then. And why don't I read this sermon that he gave? Uh, it's chapter 2, and I'm going to read sentence 1 to 9. So Malachi, chapter 2, sentences 1 to 9, page 960 in the church's Bible. This is what Malachi had to say. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I'll curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices. Hmm. <laughs> and you will be carried off with it, no doubt to the town dump or something. And you will know that I have sent you this warning, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. And this called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and the people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and your teaching has caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law." Pretty strong stuff, isn't it? I wonder how that would go down if I stood up and started saying, I'm going to smear the dung of your domestic pets in your faces. It's not going to go down too well. I wouldn't have thought. What are we going to make of it? Well, leadership matters. Let's start there for a moment. Leadership matters, doesn't it? We're at that time of year that if you're up on the chase at any point, you often see those clusters of teenagers, don't you? gathered around, huge rucksacks on their back with tents and roll mats and the like, clearly on their Duke of Edinburgh expedition. And they always, inevitably it seems to me, seem to be clustered together. They don't seem to do much walking. They seem to be clustered together, staring at a map and someone 
casually turning a compass round and round and round, attempting to work out how to use it. Have you seen them up there on the chase sometimes? Maybe I'm talking about you, perhaps, when you go out hiking, not quite sure which way to go. Well, that's an obvious example, isn't it, where leadership matters. If you're out on a walk, on a hike, and whoever you've given responsibility to be in charge reads the map wrong or gets the compass reading wrong, it's not just the leader who ends up in the wrong place, but it's all of you, isn't it? Have you ever been in that situation? I have. Uh, at mile 11 of our Duke of Edinburgh expedition, we realised we'd been walking 90 degrees in the wrong direction for the whole 11 miles. That popped up to quite an extra few steps we had to do. Leadership matters. Leadership matters in society. That's why many of us got so energetic with the general election a few weeks ago. We, it matters who we put in charge of the nation. Leadership matters in the commercial world. It's part of the reason why the big bucks are paid to the CEOs and the COOs and those sorts of people, because their leadership is so valuable and important within the organisation. It matters in the charity sector. I don't know if you've picked up, but governors of schools are now more and more and more responsible for the direction that a school takes and the responsibility that sits on there. If you're involved in sport, you know that if you get a great captain, that can take an average team to the best team in the league. It really can if you get a dynamic leader within that group of performers. Leadership matters in church. The New Testament particularly spends a disproportional amount of time talking about those who should be called to lead and their characteristics and those sorts of stuff. But the greatest leadership position, did you know this? Without doubt, the greatest leadership position in our world is if you're privileged to be a parent. Without doubt. It's a truism, isn't it? The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It is a truism. And so leadership matters in all of these different kind of categories and different kind of ways. And if you look at the first sentence of chapter 2, it says, and now you priests, this warning is for you. Now the priests of Malachi's day were the leaders of society in all sorts of different categories. They were the leaders. Now, if you were conducting some interviews to appoint someone to a leadership position, what kind of criteria would you have in your head? One very useful format is the four C's. I think it's very useful. I think you could open up your Bibles and see it there. You say, well, character matters, first of all. They've got to have a kind of character that uh, has depth to it and integrity. Secondly, they need to have a competence. They need to have an ability to do the job, whatever that job might be, the skill set that's required. Thirdly, they need the chemistry, by which we don't necessarily mean they get on with people naturally, but they are aligned to the values and the vision of the organisation, the chemistry. And lastly, that they have the calling. We'd certainly want to insert that within the Christian sense, wouldn't we? That they are called to this thing at this moment, at this time. Here's the shock. is Malachi does not highlight any of those. Leading as a parent, leading as a grandparent, leading in church, leading in an organisation, leading in a charity, none of those things are first and foremost on Malachi's mind. Look again at what he carries on to say in sentence two. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honour my name. 
Do you see that little phrase repeated twice there? You have not resolved to honour my name. See, right at the heart of any desire to have an impact in the leadership position you hold, beginning with being a parent, in your friendship group, as a colleague at work, within a church context, whatever it might be, begins with an unflinching infatuation with God's honour. These priests were failing, these leaders were failing, because they did not resolve to honour God's name. That word resolve meant there means something like be resolute about it, be determined, be unyielding, be preoccupied with the glory of God. So we have to start asking questions now, don't we? Well, actually, the way I lead, where I lead, wherever it might be, as a parent, is it the honour of God which I am first and foremost infatuated with? Is it the glory of God that is most important in my workplace, within the context of my church leadership? Is it that God is esteemed and displayed in all his spectacular splendour? Is that number one? Now let's just pull into a lay-by just for a moment, because if you've read this like I first read it, I'd have said, well, that's quite clear there, that Malachi is is talking to the priests and he's saying, get back to honouring God. But are there any priests today? Who is this actually relevant to two and a half thousand years later? And the answer to that question, are there priests today, is both a yes and a no, actually. The priests of the Old Testament had two particular jobs. One, they were mediators between God and people. They had to offer sacrifices and mediate between God and people. And secondly, they were teachers. They would teach the Bible, as we call it, and speak for God to people. Now, in that mediating role, there are no priests today. We're told that Jesus is the perfect high priest. He perfectly mediates between us and God. And so we do not need anybody else to connect us with God. Only Jesus. No priest, no pastor, no guru, no life group leader, no book that you love to read, no author who impacts you significantly. No one else is needed except for Jesus to connect you with God. But the second role that the Old Testament priests had, the teaching role, when it comes to our time in God's history, that role to teach God's word is given to everybody. Is given to everybody, the teaching aspect. So in the New Testament, the church, and that just describes people who have trusted in Jesus. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that's all that being a Christian means, trust in Jesus. If you've done that, you might like to be baptised. And in July and August, we've got some baptism services. You can come talk to me about that. But actually, the New Testament said, if you've trusted in Jesus, then he gives you the priestly role of teaching everyone around you. We know that because we're called a kingdom of priests in the New Testament. That every single one of us suddenly is given this very, very special, privileged role. You can speak for God to other people. There's not this subclass of priests anymore. We can all do it. And it's that teaching role that Malachi has in mind here. So what Malachi has to say about returning to honour God, and we'll see why honouring God's word is so important in that, actually is applicable to all of us. It's applicable to us if we are parents or colleagues or friends or fellow Christians. We're to speak to, for God to one another and teach one another. 
It's applicable for some of us who are called specifically to teach the Bible, Bible publicly. So if you're a life group leader or a children's church leader or a preacher on a Sunday or someone who chooses our songs that we sing, then this is applicable to you because that's all public teaching. It's applicable to those of us needing particular guidance right now. Now, is that you at the moment? Something in your life that you particularly want some help to understand. Why this matters to you is because you need to know who to trust, to listen to as they teach God's word, don't you? Who's actually going to guide you helpfully from what the Bible says? And this is applicable as well, and we don't think often as a church about this, which is fine, so it doesn't happen very often, but this is very <coughs> applicable for when we come to call and employ someone to teach the Bible in a public sense. What actually are that list of criteria when we talk to someone about that role? What actually are the criteria that should be there? What's most important? So all of us are priests, and Malachi is using the strongest possible tone here to lovingly warn us back to that unflinching infatuation with God's glory. I often look at Bible passages and wonder which ones my boys would most enjoy. Without doubt, verse 3 would be enjoyed, wouldn't it? By a bunch of little boys and little girls. And I saw lots of you smoke when we read that as well. I'm going to smear on your faces dung. But Malachi is saying such dramatic language because he lovingly wants to warn them back to the kind of teaching of people that they should be doing. He says that very clearly there in sentence four. He says, and you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi will continue. Now Levi was like the prototype priest. He was like the perfect priest, if you like, the perfect teacher of God's word. And Malachi is saying, I'm warning you in this strongest language, this disgusting and gross language, because you've got to get back to that original design of honouring God in how you teach about him and how you speak about him. And you've drifted from there, and I want you to come back. So important, isn't it? And so this morning, as a parent, or as a Christian, or as a friend, or as a leader, this morning, Malachi is offering the enormous opportunity to <coughs> redefine and reorganise your priorities. So that God, again, would get the honour in the way that you parent and live and speak and talk. Does he consciously get the glory? And the way Malachi helps us to know whether that is us or not is by attaching our honouring of God to the honouring of God's word. That the honouring of God is directly linked to whether we honour what God is saying. Look again at Exodus <coughs> 5 and 6. Verse 5, my covenant was with him, and it was a covenant of life and peace. I gave them to him, and this called for reverence, and he revered, or he honoured me, and stood in awe of my name. That's Levi, this perfect prototype priest. 
But then verse 6, how did God know that he was being honoured by Levi? Because true instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. You see the link? That actually honouring God is shown by whether we honour God's word. And actually that's true in any relationship, isn't it? Just have a brain break for a moment and think about a relationship that you have. You could almost pick any relationship that was positive in your life. Think about uh, if you happen to have the privilege of being a parent, how do you know if your child honours you? If they do what you say, that's pretty much it, isn't it? Pretty much. That your child's honouring of you is intrinsically linked to whether they honour your word. Or, or think about, I was on base, as I am most weeks, on the MOD base last week, and thinking about this passage and teaching this passage to a group of soldiers. And the illustration I could easily use there was to some of the lads. I said, well, how, do, how will I know if you honour your CO, your commanding officer? Well, if they do what he says... There's no honour of the commanding officer if they do not honour his words. You just can't have it, can you? Or what about if you're in the classroom or the lecture hall? You're the student. How is your honouring of the teacher displayed? Well, only if you honour their word. And so God here, Malachi, links directly. As he calls us back to honour God in all of life, he's saying, actually, that is shown by how you approach his word. And he pinpoints two ways that we fall into dishonouring God. And the people of Malachi's day, as he preached this to them, they didn't see this in themselves. Preachers never need to say what people already know, do they? Preachers are called to say what people have forgotten. So I wonder if I'll invite you to freshly examine your life, not just to default to the fact, well, I've been doing what I've been doing, and I've been a Christian for a very long time, so I'm sure I'm fine, but actually genuinely to say, perhaps is God just ringing that warning bell? Have I drifted from honouring God in my attitude, my motivations, my approach of how I live and conduct my life? Here's the two clues. The first is, is if you don't teach God's word, you will not be speaking for God. You don't teach God's word. If what you are saying is not clearly from the Bible, then you are not saying what God wants to say. To your children, your colleagues, to people you're responsible with to teach in church. You'll just be grabbing another voice, but it won't be God's voice. Let me show it to you. Look at sentence six again. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. Or look at the beginning of sentence eight. It says, but you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. Or look at the end of sentence 9. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. We long, don't we, to hear from God. I hope you do. I hope if you're not a Christian here, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there is a longing to hear from God. Well, how do you know if it's God's voice you are hearing only if it's clearly teaching and saying something that you found in the Bible. You feel that God has spoken to you audibly. Some people feel that. Or through a vision or a picture. It is only God's voice if you can clearly attach it to something written in the Bible. Otherwise, it's just another voice that you are wishfully hoping might be God's, often because it's saying what you want it to hear. And that means both 
a constraint and a courage. The constraint is that actually, very rarely, if we've trusted in Jesus, very rarely we are constrained to what he is saying by what is written in the Bible. Now, there's more than enough of it there, so we don't need to worry about that. But we're constrained. There is a boundary set which we cannot step beyond, if that makes sense. I wonder if some of our wiser heads in the room, which is my polite way of saying if you're a little bit older, Donald Coogan or Kogan? Archbishop of Canterbury up until 1980. Cogan? Cogan. 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 There we go. <laughs> Jeff was willing to put his hand up and say, I'm a wiser saint. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> this, we all knew it already. This is what he says about this constraint. He says, the Christian preach, preacher, but put in there the Christian parent, the, the Christian colleague, the Christian friend, whatever you want. The Christian has a boundary set for them. When they enter the pulpit, they are not an entirely free man. There is a very real sense in which it may be said of them that the Almighty has set a boundary which they shall not pass. They are not at liberty to invent or choose their message. It's been committed to them, and it is for them to be declared, expounded, and commended to their hearers. Do you see the constraint that is necessary? If it's here, it's God's word, and if it's not, it's not. And there's no middle ground or grey area. But secondly, it takes courage, doesn't it? I don't know about you. Can I talk personally just for a moment? I don't know about you. And for those of us who aren't Christians here this morning, you're kind of looking in and listening in on the struggles that an ordinary person has when it comes to living from God. But I don't know about you if you're a Christian, if you trust Jesus. It's quite easy to say Bible things when my friends agree with what I'm saying. That's easy, isn't it? That, that's really easy. So love language from the Bible is often really easy to talk to people about, isn't it? Because everyone kind of says, yeah, you should love everyone, shouldn't you? You should love everyone. I find it hardest when there is something that is taught in the Bible, but which at that moment is in conflict with what society says is the found wisdom. That when society says this is the way to do something and it is in conflict or disagreement with what the Bible says, that's when I find it hard. Are you like that? I suspect so, unless you're of a certain makeup that enjoys confrontation. That's when it's difficult, isn't it? And yet, actually, there's a very real sense where our loyalty to God, our actually are we speaking for God, is, is shown at that point of conflict with culture. When we're driving with our teenager to football practice and they ask us a question and we know that the Bible's answer will be very, very different to the answer they hear from their school teachers and school friends. When our three-year-old, as we're laying on the floor reading them their bedtime story, asks a question at the three-year-old level and we know that there is a choice at that moment between saying what they will be hearing for the rest of their lives from the world and saying what God says in his word. It's when we're sitting opposite a colleague who throws one of those grenades at us, you know the ones, you're desperately hoping the phone will ring at that moment or something, anything that will take you away from the situation. That's where the loyalty of the soldier is proven, isn't it? At that point of conflict. 
So Martin Luther, uh, a great reformer of about 400 years ago, this is what he says, slightly oldy language, but I think it's fantastic. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, that is where the loyalty of the soldier is proved. But to be steady on all fronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if they flinch at that point. So I wonder what you make of that. That's Malachi's very strong language, calling us back to honour God by calling us to honour his word. He says, if you don't teach the Bible, you do not speak for God. You do not speak for God unless it comes from the Bible. The second one he highlights of the two is if you don't obey God's word, you'll not live for God. Now, I'm a firm believer that God's ways are not just right, they are better. I'm a firm believer that the Bible outlines a way of living that is better than any other option that is presented. But we only enter that life, we only live that life if we live it in obedience to what God's word says. So look at the end of sentence six. If you've got it there, it'd be great to see it there. The end of sentence six, it says, he, so this is Levi, this, this perfect one who is honouring God, he walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Not just his words, but it's his walk, not just his lip, but his life. It matters there as well, doesn't it? And again, I think the test there comes, doesn't it? If the test about our speaking is when culture is in conflict with the Bible, the test of our living is when there's a personal cost that comes through obedience to the Bible. A shift in a relationship, a shift in a way of living, a shift in spending habits, a shift in who we have to love and reach out to beyond just our comfortable friendship groups, but to anyone and everyone. That's where we don't want to live the Bible's way. Let me give you one example, probably some of the most famous things Jesus said. Jesus says, love your neighbours, doesn't he? That's kind of saying, love the people who are like you. Love the people who are, who are in your life and are going to affect your life. So love them so they'll love you back. Jesus says that. Love your neighbours, doesn't he? And I hope you all say, yes, 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 yes. We can do that, can't we? What's the other love thing he says? What is that other thing? Love your enemies. Love your enemies? What? You mean the guy who defrauded me of all that money with his scam? You mean the one who absolutely destroyed me for years because of their abuse? You mean the one who has left me alone? Love them? But it's not just right, it's better. And Malachi is saying, look, if you want to live for God, if you want to live in the life God has for you, then you need to obey his word. You cannot pick and choose. You need to seek to obey it all. Honouring his word is honouring him. 
DC Talk say this. It's a great quote, though it's taken from someone years before they borrowed it and put it into their song, What If I Stumble? This is what they say. They say the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out of the door and deny him with their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world finds so unbelievable. And it's true, isn't it? It's very true. So Malachi here, let's pause and get our wits around us. Malachi here is issuing in the strongest possible tone, and I'm trying to mimic something of his tone. I believe that God works through the tone of what the Bible is written in, not just the, the words of it. He's issuing a call, a warning. Have you drifted from an unflinching focus on the honour of God? Have you fallen into the trap of not resolving to give God the glory in every aspect of life as priests who are there to teach God and live God in all parts of our life? Have you moved away from his honour? How do I know? Malachi says you know by looking about how you honour his word. You honour it with your lips and with your life. Now, I just want to pause and I just want to draw three implications out of this. Three really important implications about how consciously we approach and understand the Bible. And then we're going to finish with some much more positive, upbeat stuff of what Malachi has to say. Here's implication number one. This authority we're talking about is a delegated authority. So as a parent or as a preacher or as a life group leader, whatever is your context of speaking about Jesus from the Bible, your authority and my authority is entirely dependent on a life and a lip aligned to God's word. The only authority a Christian leader has and the only authority a preacher has and then into all aspects of life, the only authority we have is if it is directly tied to this word. And as soon as someone drifts away from it, as soon as someone starts to teach or suggest something that is not explicit here or implied by that explicit teaching, as soon as we've turned from that, then we no longer have an authority. Because it's delegated. It's given to God as we align ourselves to this word. And it's got to be both our words and our life. Otherwise, people will say to us, like our children, I cannot hear what you are saying because I can see what you are doing. So it must be life and lip, mustn't it? Secondly, it's a positional authority. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay? Depends where we position the Bible. You might say, well, yes, I know it's a delegated authority. I know it's about the Bible. This is God's word. We just speak it out. But it also depends where you put it. Some of us say, the Bible's there. And I'm kind of over it. So it's a useful place to go to get wisdom, as long as that wisdom agrees with mine. And where there is a clash, then I, my authority, overrides it. And can I just say, I think in our day and age, the greatest authority most of us have, depending on generation, most of us have, is our feelings. We give our feelings enormous authority over our lives. I feel deeply in love with her, and so I should abandon my marriage and establish a new relationship. Our feelings have an authority, don't they? I feel that this is the right thing to do. Now, sometimes God does use your feelings, but only if they underline and underscore something that's written in the Bible. 
Otherwise, we're saying our feelings are a greater authority than God's word, and I'm over it. The other place that we put the Bible, which is not helpful, is we position it next to us. So we say we kind of have a dual authority, a mutual authority. And where the Bible and I kind of disagree, then the job is to meet halfway. I'll accept those two things you're saying if you accept these two, and actually truth is found somewhere in the middle. But actually, no. God is too loving to have made a mistake. God is too, uh, God is too wise to have made a mistake, and God is too loving to wish us harm, so we trust it fully. The third wrong position we put the Bible is we stand it far away. I'll just leave the Bible over there. And the aspects of my life which are over there the Bible can put, put its tuppence into. But this part of my life, I'm going to keep the Bible out of. So the Bible can speak into some of my spiritual side and my church going and those sorts of things. But if it comes to relationships or marriage or workplace or building a career or how I spend my money, I'll just keep the Bible a bit further away from those things. Do you ever do that? I don't know. Now the way the Bible should be positioned is like this, isn't it? Over us. And we say, actually, I want to hear from God. I want to honour God, so I need to hear his word and respond in obedience. And his word is over me because God is over me. Because you cannot distinguish someone's word from themselves, can you? And then the third implication is that it's an essential authority. It's a delegated authority, it's a positional authority, it's where we place it in our lives, and then it's an essential authority. What I mean by that is the failure of the church to impact the world has always been intrinsically linked to a failure of the church to live under the word. We see that all the time. When the church or when Christian believers abandon God's word, they abandon having an impact for God. Think of Adam and Eve. God speaks to them. He talks to them. They have his word. And what do Adam and Eve say right at the beginning? They say, ah, did God really say that? Actually, let's uh, hear some other voices on this other than God's. Let's have a compromised position. They abandon living under God's word. They abandon their impact for God. Old Testament Israel were exactly the same, constantly falling out of the blessing that God had for them. Why? Because they chose to ignore God's word. Amos diagnoses it as a famine of the word of God. Not that God hadn't laid a feast of his word, but people refused to come and eat from it. And that means that all of our attempts to teach God's Bible, if you're a parent, or whatever role you have, however you do it, in the workplace, wherever it may be, all of those attempts need to be what's called exposition, not imposition. What I mean by that is attempts to expose what God is saying from here and not impose onto it what we want it to say. Do you see the difference? I expose God's voice, not impose mine onto it. Right, let's pause, get our wits around us for coming into land with some more positive application out of this. What I've tried to do, and I've tried to go a little bit deeper this morning than is sometimes the case. I've tried to say, look, Malachi is saying, and here's the big thing, he's saying, where have you deserted God's honour? We are all a kingdom of priests. We're called to be priests. 
The fundamental criteria of being a priest is that we honour God. Where have you deserted that? Where is there no longer unflinching infatuation and desire to honour God? Where are you not consciously functioning in your life saying God's glory is paramount? And then he said, how do we tell honouring God is linked to honouring his word? And we've looked at a couple of ways that we fail to do that in how we speak and in how we live. Honouring God is linked to honouring his word. If you do not honour his word, you are not honouring God. Let's have a look at the positive sentence, if you like. Because when it comes to honouring God by honouring his word, the question is, what should we be like? Look at sentence seven, and I'd love it to see you looking down and seeing my attempts to expose what this sentence says and not impose onto it what I think it says. You can check if you've got a Bible there, can't you? Sentence seven. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and the people seek instruction from his mouth. Now you can put whatever role you have in life into that. For the lips of a parent ought to preserve knowledge because he or she is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and the children will seek instruction from their mouth. Or you can put the lips of a work colleague or the lips of a preacher. You can, you can do the exchange, can't you? And there's three things here, isn't there? Three kind of descriptions of what we, all of us now, should be like. The first is, we're guards who protect. It says, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve or guard knowledge. Protect it. So we're a safe bastion for the truth of God's word. We're defenders of it. Guards, if you like, of it. That's the first one, guard it. The second is we're heralds who proclaim it. Do you see that in the middle there? Because he or she is a messenger of the Lord Almighty. So we're not just guards who protect it, but we are messengers who herald it. So some of us will have neglected guarding it. We're not very protective of God's truth. But some of us will neglect the heralding it. Do you herald it to your children? Do you herald it to your work colleagues? Do you herald it to your friends in the sports team? Do you tell it? And that word messenger of the Lord Almighty, the word messenger, which is the Hebrew word Malachi, it's a play on his own name, isn't just someone who brings the words. It is in fact someone who comes with the very authority of the one who has sent them. So it's not just someone who comes and says, I've got a message to tell you. It's someone who comes and I'm going to tell it with real authority, real belief that this is true. It's the Hebrew word from which we get the idea of an apostle, a proclaimer of God's truth. So are you a herald? Do you tell it out and speak it? A guard? A herald? And then lastly, a reservoir. Have a look at the last little bit. It says, and people will seek instruction from his mouth. The word there for seek is the idea of flowing water. It's a reservoir who makes it available. Now, if you think for a moment what a reservoir is, we sometimes think, well, a reservoir is a place that water is stored, don't we? But that's not actually what a reservoir is. It's not the reservoir's point. The point of a reservoir is not to store water, it's to have the water available for when it is needed. It's to actually release water, isn't it? It's a reservoir's purpose. And so he says here, actually, that's what we also should be like. We should be so well stored, so full of the truth of God, that it is ready to be released when people ask. 
So as we finish, what I'm going to ask us to do is just to spend a minute in quiet reflection, thinking about our own lives, thinking about where we need to return to a desire to honour God, thinking perhaps if you're not yet a Christian about whether that's a step to take this morning, but perhaps using these three images specifically about where am I failing to honour God's word? Am I failing to guard it, protect it, or do I allow it just to be attacked and wounded? Am I failing to herald it as a parent, as a work colleague, in some responsibility within the church? Am I failing to herald it? Am I failing to be a reservoir of it, ready to release it as people need, to bring life like reservoir water does? Which one particularly do you need to work on? A better guard? A better herald? Or a better reservoir of that truth? Let's have a minute reflecting on that. Then Kate's going to lead us in a song. And then actually Chris is going to ask a few questions of a couple of our leaders about their own experience of leading within church context. Let's have a minute with our own thoughts. <laughs>